Hello, my fabulous chai drinkers. How are you? Welcome to episode 10 of season three of the show, coming to you as always from Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. When we think of stand-up comedians, we don't really think about mindful masculinity and raising strong daughters. The Me Too movement wreaked havoc on the stand-up comedy world, but honestly, the deep-rooted misogyny was already well-documented. But our guest today shatters stereotypes not only of the stand-up guy, but also of the clueless, privileged white guy. <laughs> I'm talking about the one and only Pete Dominic. Dominic was born in Syracuse, New York, and started performing in public during high school, where he would MC talent shows and read morning announcements. His career took off in the late 1990s when he performed in various clubs around Manhattan. One of Dominic's highest profile gigs was as the warm-up act for The Colbert Report with Stephen Colbert on Comedy Central. He was also the warm-up act for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and even had a stint as a CNN correspondent. Dominic is known for being open and honest about his political and philosophical views on his awesome show, Stand Up with Pete Dominic. And he is our guest today on Spilling Chai. Hello and welcome to the show, Pete. How are you? This is going to be audio only. Are you okay with that? No. <laughs> I, I wanted to do video only with no audio. <laughs> Literally hurt my feelings. I'm so sorry. <laughs> sir, sir, I'm sorry. Could you turn your camera off? You look like a gargoyle. I was actually going to say, gosh, you look all cleaned up. You don't want to see me though. I wish you would turn on your camera right now and you had a fucking eye patch. <laughs> And like, we're missing a tooth. I was like, good God, turn it off. <laughs> I was writing my questions for this interview. And then I was like, I know that we're just going to go off as soon as, as soon as the interview starts. But I do actually shockingly have some questions. Um, but I wanted to quickly ask you, where are your daughters? Are they away for camp? Because I saw you tweeted the other day, how much you miss them. Yeah. So my daughters are 13 and 16 and they are at sleepaway camp. And it's the very best thing if you can afford it for your kids because they don't have their screens, Anoshay. And it's like yeah. th these screens are, there's just no doubt and all parents agree that they're mostly very bad. And you, you your, your mood is up and down with them, even as an adult. And, yeah. and so they don't have screens for weeks and you can just see when you see them, it, they're, they're completely changed. It's so healthy for them. And I miss, but I miss them terribly. Uh, but my daughter said, dad, I know you're going to miss me. My 16 year old, very thoughtful and smart. She's like, I know you're gonna miss me. So when you think about me and you get sad, just know I'm having an awesome time. So I just keep doing that. I take it. That is so sweet. So are all camps like this? Because we kind of had this issue for the first time this summer, deciding if we should send our 10 year old away to sleep away camp which is what all of her friends did. And me and my husband were like, no way, we can't let her go until she's like 18. Is this very American sleepaway camp? No, there's a lot of divide I found out because I was talking about it on my show and there were a lot of listeners wow. who were American where they're like, that's an East Coast thing or, you know, Jewish people do that. And <laughs> so I think it is, it is, it is. Jewish people do do it. I mean, all of my Jewish friends send their kid to camp and went themselves to camp. And what they also say is, it was the best thing I ever did as an eight-year-old. The best thing, yeah. My a lot of my Jewish friends loved their camps growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they and they keep they make friends for life, and they have all kinds of experiences. I think the parents, I would make fun of my Jewish friends because I would be like, "Why have kids and then send them away? 
Why have kids? You have kids to send them away, apparently. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, they're not about you. Your kids aren't there solely for your happiness. You know, you're there. We're birds and the kids in the nest and you feed the bird and then the bird flies away. Do you know that is a line from a very famous poem by Khalil Gibran? Your children, you do not own your children. They are not yours. They're yours to give away. Yes. Wow. Yes, I've I've studied Gibran and, and I've been very influenced by him or her. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, <laughs> you are too hilarious. Okay, on to something a little bit more serious. I'm going to quote some of your beautiful writing. Uh-oh. Losing my ideal job saved my marriage, even mm-hmm. though it felt like the end of everything I loved. I know you recognize those lines that you wrote. Tell me about your how you decided to write your viral article, <clears throat> How Losing My Job Saved My Marriage. Well, you should know my wife just left me. Um, I'm kidding. Well, <laughs> I was going to die. It's over that. I wrote that article like a year and a half ago. <laughs> uh, should have told you. No, it's, she's awesome. She's uh, right now running in the heat. She likes to run in the, in the, the hottest time of day. The article as a stand-up comedian, you learn to be as honest as you possibly can in a way to make your audience laugh, to be as vulnerable as you can, to connect with your audience, to keep your audience, to build trust with your audience, but really to, to make them laugh. And so much comedy comes from truth and pain and, and just collective experiences in general. And so I had that trait, that characteristic where I, a lot of people rightfully don't want to share their failures, their personal experiences, their losses for a lot of good reasons. It's no, It's private. Uh, that's the norm. But I have always been a very public person and there was no secret, you know, when you're, when you're on the radio every day for five days a week for almost 14 years in my case at Sirius XM, and then you're off the radio, everybody knows you lost your, your job, like, or you could spin it. And, and, and I, I decided not to and say, I quit to move on and you know, launch my independent thing. And the truth is, no, I like the 401k and the healthcare, but I, it's not like if you're a, a plumber or you are a train engineer or, or any job, people don't know. All your friends don't know unless you post it on social media. So everybody knew what had happened to me. And the universe really came out for me and told me all kinds of amazing things. But I didn't want to tell my wife that I was in pain. I wanted to be stoic. As, as I like to think I'm vulnerable and honest, in, including with her, but I wanted to be stoic. I wanted to and gender confidence. I'd been the, the the breadwinner for a really long time, which meant she didn't have to work outside the house as much. And I wanted to be able to support my family. And there came a point three months after my gig at Sirius ended where everybody knew, few people in my life knew how scared I was and how nervous I was getting and, and concerned I was for my future, my career. But my wife didn't know. I didn't want to tell her. I didn't want her to lose confidence in me. And if I told her I was scared, then she would be scared. And I didn't want her to be scared. So I didn't tell her until I did. Until I just, I had to. And when I told her how scared I was and how anxious I was and depressed for the very first time, I'd always helped everybody else and helped tell their stories about their anxiety and depression. Now here I was experiencing it for the first time in my adult life. And when I told her, she just showed up like, with a bright light on her. And not that I didn't know she didn't have, that she had this capacity. I did. She's a brilliant woman, but I didn't want to give her my pain. I didn't want to give her my fear. It affected our bottom line. And she just started talking about, you know, Pete, the lotus flower 
grows out of the mud. You're in the mud. And I was like, who are you? <laughs> and there was so much of that in that one talk. And then she peeled me off the ground so many times. And that's why I want to write that article because men have this experience all the time. Yes. And men don't know how to, they don't want to talk about their fear, their failures. Uh, certainly when it comes to money or success or career, they don't want to do that. And I thought, and I've always wanted to be someone who was part of the solution. And men have a lot of problems. America has no idea. I'm just talking about America. You know, you could talk about Pakistan, I suppose, and we could talk about all other countries, but American men, America doesn't know what to do with its men and American men don't know what to do with themselves. And I decided that I wanted to be a man who was trying to be vulnerable and inspire other men to do the same thing. I've had so many male mentors that have helped me and I want to, I want to be that guy. So that article was my way of telling men, dude, you gotta, you gotta get through this and here's how you can do it. And it was also just a way to debunk the idea that your marriage ends when the gravy train ends. Losing your job is not the end of your marriage. It can be the beginning of something more beautiful, which I never expected it to be in our case. And our marriage has been far from perfect. We've had a lot of problems, but that was the craziest, best thing that ever happened in my marriage. Well, we don't allow men to be vulnerable, especially I feel like in America or actually all over the world. I mean, toxic masculinity is real. We don't we don't allow men to be vulnerable and men feel that. But I feel like that's breaking. Right. I mean, with the new generation, you know, there's such a conversation. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Liz Plank yep. and her work about for the love of men. It's all about, you know, basically deconstructing toxic masculinity and letting men be vulnerable. Yeah. Gender is all very fluid now for a lot of reasons. We don't really need to have these. I mean, if we're going to be in this kind of more progressive minded thing, it's like women can do pretty much every job. Men, you know, can do. Men can cry and be scared. <laughs> well, we we still we, we we can't be yet. We're not. I think we're 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 better at women's equity in terms of opportunity for careers. Maybe we've made a little bit more ground on that than we have at allowing men yeah. to be vulnerable and cry. Yeah. Because because until until kids on the playground, until boys on the playground don't have the creativity beat out of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're 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 six years old and you're really into musicals and and then you tell your friends and they call you a horrible name yeah. or they just something pejorative about your interest in musicals. And then Anoshe, you're no longer interested in musicals. Yeah. Like we have to allow boys to be interested in anything they want and not genderize them. My daughter, when she was eight, loved Legos. And she once told me, she's like, don't tell anybody I play with Legos. Yeah. I go, why? why? She goes, it's a boy thing. I was like, and so I hit her. No. <laughs> so I, I, I was shocked by that. And I, I didn't know how to respond. I was like, oh, this is a huge opportunity. What do I do here? And I basically, you know, I said something like, there's no such thing. Yeah. That's not a thing. Yeah. And you can play with whatever you want. You can play with whatever toys you want, but that's so true. All the science and math toys and the building toys were for yeah. boys and all the pink shit was for girls. Yeah. Yeah. So, so until, you know, we looking at children and how they're raised and how, honestly, how, what happens on the playground, what happens when the adults aren't around, that's when we start to I think see signs of these future men 
will be able to be vulnerable. I mean, there's so much to talk about with Man in America. And I'm really trying to lead interviewing experts on it and learning about all of the things we can do. And there's a lot of really great work being done. It's just going to, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take two to three generations if we make it that far on this planet to have, and I'm just, again, talking about America, you know, I think they're better on gender equity in some place like Norway or, uh, I mean, but they're still super racist. So you win some, you lose some, but um, yeah, you know, like I don't want to. Uh, yeah. yeah. The Nordic countries get a lot of love, but they have different problems on. Yeah. Like Sweden has, is so, is so feminist with their government, but they're domestic violence rates are off the charts. So oh, yeah. that's, I didn't, I didn't know that about domestic violence. And, and I think, you know, men have to also like, I've worked in the domestic violence space because I got recruited by women's organizations because they wow. said we need men to communicate these things. It's, it's not, it, yes. it doesn't work if, alone. Certainly if women are like men need to stop being this way, no men who are respected in their fields, whatever. So I, I, I did a bunch of these types of talks with a former professional football player uh, who I, by the way, grew up like loving. So that was a pretty cool thing for me. And and so I'd done a lot of that. And that, by the way, became so taxing emotionally because the domestic abuse issue in America and was getting worse. Like the statistics got worse during the time I was doing the work. I'm like, I think I may be making it work. No, I wasn't blaming myself. (laughs) It got worse over the last year too, you know, in the pandemic all across the world, but in America, especially because uh, our access to guns and how they were deemed essential businesses in the midst of the pandemic. But wow, I didn't know that. I can imagine it's emotionally taxing because you have to absorb so much emotionally. Yeah, I would would sit here and and I wasn't even like, let's be clear, I wasn't going to shelters. I wasn't working with women. You know, I wasn't talking to a woman shortly after she'd been attacked or something like that. I was just going in and giving talks. But when I would go in and I'd give these talks and I would talk to the the women and men who were doing that work, they were (laughs) haggard. And Ushay, they were like beaten. Yeah. They were beaten because they deal with it every day. And they'd be like, oh yeah, it's it's horrible. And I've talked to police, you know, uh, detectives and people who worked on these and uh, these issues and trying to talk about what the, and there aren't initiatives. The initiatives have to be what I've, what we we're talking about earlier with that has to start with raising boys to understand where their rage is coming from, understand where their anger is coming from and work on all of those things and then not fall into these genderized categories about what is expected of you as a man versus as a human. I mean, bravo. Yes. Oh gosh. I'm exactly. That was so right on bravo. I know what I'm going to use for your audiogram now. Well, that was from Gibran as well. So. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> You're too much. Okay, so from headlining stand-up comedy gigs across the country to The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, CNN, big-time speaking gigs, to live radio, what? talk to me about what you love about live radio. What what makes it special? Well, I, what I love about live radio, the same thing I love about stand-up comedy is the interaction with complete strangers and having to keep them engaged. I love it. Isn't that scary? Uh, for you, it might be because you don't need it. You need it? Yes. Huh. Well, not anymore. <laughs> I, to be fair, I, not anymore. To be fair, if I, I love the work, but if I could go in, if I, you know, if you could reinvent, snap your fingers at 
my t- case 45 and and go in another career direction and still be able to afford to send your kids through college. I, I would explore all kinds of things in environmentalism and sustainability. And even, you know, I am trying to create this, this gender thing that we've kind of been talking about. Um, I'm at the beginning of that. So, but, but I do love it and I did need it. I don't need it as much anymore, but that's why people say, Oh, isn't that scary? Yeah. For most people, because most people don't need the attention, the approval of complaint, complete strangers enough to, take that risk of humiliation and, and embarrassment. But I'm, mm-hmm. I've been doing it for so long now that I can't be embarrassed. Like even in my private life, I can't be. But you know, the live, I had a uh, Greg Proops on the, on the show and we were talking about how nasty sometimes the audience can be and the kind of right, they feel like they have this right to, that you're obligated to make them laugh. And if they don't, they can just, throw shit on you on stage. Have you ever had that? Yeah, but I don't. Yeah, that's happened, but I don't. Do you throw the tomatoes back? (laughs) I've, I've, uh, trying to think if I've ever actually had something thrown at me and I can't, maybe like a kid's show or something I did. Um, like that's like abuse on the stage. Sure. Yeah. Uh, people don't know how to behave a lot in an audience, but I just, I don't complain about that. I haven't had that happen so much. I've had a lot of hostile interactions with people, but that's part of it. And I take it as, I once saw a comedian named Greg Fitzsimmons. He was killing on stage. And then some woman started yelling at him and he snapped on her. And this, to be fair, this is like in the nineties, not that it's defensive, but he called her the C word. Oh my God. And the whole audience was like shocked by it. Yeah. And then and he kind of did it in anger. And then he won them all back. Huh. And it was such a weird thing to witness. And when he came off stage, I asked him, you know, why did you do that? He goes, because I'm so good that I needed a challenge. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I share that cockiness. Yeah. That ego. Hmm. Yeah. And and the ego. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that, but I, and I wouldn't purposely make an audience. I don't want to do that, but it does happen. Not on purpose. They turn on you. And so then the goal is how do I, how do I win? How do I control this audience and keep them happy and laughing in that case? And in radio, it's different, you know, but the same, you know, a lot of the same rules. And I think thoughts apply just interacting with strangers to me, on a large scale and live radio or in stand up, I love that. I love it. Uh, you know, and this is what is so interesting to me because I feel like we live in such a visual world and such a visual age, but then kind of like this whole, like the return of podcasts has, has not the return, but kind of the explosion of podcasts in the past, let's say five, 10 years. People are really returning to the intimacy of radio. What do you think about that? I think people are lonely a lot. And I think they love to hear a conversation and feel like they're part of it. And, and, and in my case, I've created a whole community with my podcast and, you know, which I should say came from, you know, my, my time at Sirius XM. But I think that people like to hear a conversation that's smart, that's entertaining, that's funny and learn from it. I think people want to continually, like my wife listens to podcasts, a lot of different podcasts that have made her like so much more intelligent or educated on this idea or issue than before. So in a lot of ways, I feel like it's like being an autodidact, like a self-learning, you know, I don't have to go to college to learn about whatever I'm interested in learning about. So I like to believe it's a lot about education and, and learning, but I do think it's also about, as you mentioned, like the intimacy of it, depending on 
on the conversation. I mean, you and I have had personal conversations in the past. If we had a personal conversation about our marriages, about our kids, about our insecurities, like people would love, would love that. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll answer anything you want about anything, but I, I think there, there's a, an aspect of that to it as well. Oh my gosh, that person sounds like they struggle the same. Like, oh, you have all kinds of sleep issues too. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm, it's like children, like, the work of Dr. Haim Ganat, to me, I read a lot of parenting books, but his work between parent and child, he's no longer with us, but that book stands, holds up. And it's just the idea of, of letting children know that they are not the only person to ever experience this feeling that they have. When you're a child, you think you're the only one yeah. that's ever had this happen. And adults have that too. And going back to men, especially, and I just want to scream. I do. I say this every day on my show. You are not alone. The shit that you are like on the 4th of July, on a shade, I was my girl, my girls were going to camp. I was arguing with my wife. I was feeling bad for myself. The fireworks were scaring my dog. I was alone on the 4th of July. Social media told me everybody else was happy. And I was alone and, and feeling bad for myself and hating the fireworks and I put that out there on Twitter and there was like so many other people that were this acquisition cowering under their beds with their dogs. Oh my goodness. We all crave human connections. We crave connections. I think especially in the last year, we saw how unnatural it is for us not to have them. You know, like when the pandemic, when we all had to, had to isolate. I made more friends in the, in the, during the pandemic, the pandemic has been amazing for me, for my life. For your social life? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Because my social, I use an app called Marco Polo, which I talk to people on and I, and all these virtual techniques and tools and interviewing a couple of people a day and then having, getting together with like subscribers. I have like probably like 500 new friends. That is so cool. What is Marco Polo? It's an app that you, again, it's really good for men. I think, I'd love to know what you think. I mean, we're generalizing obviously here about gender, but like how men, how women communicate with women, their friends, how you talk with your, your gal pals. Yeah. And how men associate with their male friends. With their guy, yeah. And so women are more likely to catch up on a phone for a long time and do it regularly with other women. Well, get together, have coffee, have tea, have thoughtful conversations. Men are less likely to do all that. We're more likely to get together, to golf, to watch a game. And all of that means there doesn't have to be a constant dialogue. And there certainly doesn't have to be an exchange of dialogue. This app allows people, but especially men, I advocate for using this, to be heard and to not feel self-conscious while talking and sharing. So I I talk into my phone, it's a video, and I, I tell my buddy, and I do this every day, two, three times a day for almost two years, almost every single day with a guy in Australia who is one of my longest, oldest friends who we came up together in New York City in our 20s and the late 90s. And I tell him my deepest, darkest and I take a long pause and then I keep talking. He then has to listen to it. He can't interject. He just has to listen. He has, he's forced to listen. Then he responds. And I have introduced this to a bunch of men in my life and they're all eating it up to the point where it's become a little bit uh, uh, overbearing for me because I'm getting all these different videos <laughs> you know, from all these different guys. It's like, I, I can't be there for, for everybody. I, can't, I don't have time to watch them. I, I have to watch them in double speed yeah. and, and so on. But so the, when, we, when I'm with another guy, got, men have a hard time with an exchange. We have a hard time with an exchange. We interrupt, we don't listen, or we just don't, 
know what to say. I don't know what to say. Yeah. And so this really helps with all of that. And if you're that type of guy, which I think most, probably most men of a certain age, ethnicity, I don't know. I mean, maybe Jewish men maybe aren't as much like this. I always feel like I, I know Jewish guys because they're like, they're not coming in all tough guy on me. I'm like, I think that guy might be Jewish because he seems thoughtful and vulnerable. <laughs> and then, oh, that guy's clearly Italian, Irish or Arab or something. You should be an ambassador for this app. It sounds absolutely amazing. Well, I have taught, I have talked about, uh, I've talked with them offline about it and they haven't wanted to pay me yet. They should. They should absolutely they pay me. They totally should. Yeah. Um, so what I love about following you on social media and listening to your interviews and following your work is, you know, everyone. What do you think makes a good interview? Listening. Ah. <laughs> That's hard. Were you always a good listener? Still not. <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> I am better than than I ever was. Well, I've gotten better, always get better. Um, I, I still, and this is a problem in my marriage and in any in relationships, I'm still too impulsive and reactionary. So I want to interrupt and I want to be heard and Me all this too. ego stuff, I think probably. But I generally am interviewing people who are far more intelligent than I am on a broad range of issues. So it kind of like doesn't really make sense for me to say much. But when I'm interviewing and I listen to somebody, I can then react to them as a, I come in with a script, but it's just there. I don't have to have it. So I then react to what you say and, and, and go to the next logical kind of question that that's relevant to now, or I could completely do a hard pivot and, you know, say, okay, we've been talking about baseball. Let's talk about football. I mean, I could do that too, but I think that listening makes for a better interviewer because you, you have to, you have to react to it. You have to maybe yeah. give it some space. If, if you're talking to someone who was a victim of a crime, you know, you give that, you give that story space. You gave me space. A lot of it. When I talked about the, the, the article I wrote, like you let me, and I felt comfortable talking and, and keeping talking because I was, you know, telling my truth. It was really a, an important moment for me. And so listening is the answer and not necessarily reacting or, or interrupting when you have something to say. Yeah. In life as well. It's, it's like letting a conversation happen, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. But you're doing, you know, you, your question was what makes a good interview? And I think it's, it's, it's similar to what makes a good conversation, but when you're doing an interview, you're hitting record and you're sharing it with other people are hopefully listening, you know, millions of people are listening to us right now. So like, that's what you want. You want a lot of people to listen. So you do that conversation maybe differently than you would if it was just you and I off the air, not recording. Yeah. Yes. That's true. You want to be more interesting, yeah, for one. Of course, yeah. You have to keep people listening. So back to your girls, because you tweet about them. And I just think, I just feel like you're such a girl dad, right? Like Kobe would say, you know, my husband is a girl dad. What is your advice on being on being a dad of girls? Because you have a huge, as you know, with models of masculinity and also just making sure they know they can have the world. What is your advice on, on raising girls? And this is a biased question because I'm raising girls and my husband is like yeah. a great girl dad. But what is your advice? Why is your husband so good? What makes him such a good girl dad? 
he's so absorbed in, in them. You know, I had, he's so different from the dad that I had. He's so interested and involved in like, in everything that they're doing. And I had a really, you know, famous and rich dad who was, who was powerful and in politics. And I used to read about him in the news. So even though he was a great father, he wasn't, I just love how involved my, my husband is on in the day to day. And he's just such a natural feminist about, well, you know, of course they should be able to do like X, Y, and Z. And he's like so involved with their sports. And I don't know. It's just, I really picked well. <laughs> I look at my daughters. I'll just sit back and be like, look at my husband. <laughs> such that's a such a, dad. <laughs> well, that's such a, that's such a wonderful thing to hear you say about your husband too. I hope that he knows that I'm sure he does, but uh, I mean, I think the answer to your question, I mean, is, is to do what I did there, which was, you know, why is he good? Like asking, like, fine. I've always, if you want to be good at something, it's always made total sense to me. I never thought it was like particularly intelligent. As a young man, as a little boy, I would just like, oh, that guy's really good at lacrosse or playing drums. I don't know why I chose drums because I know nothing about music. But if you see someone that's good at something that you want to be good at, you just go copy them. You go ask them questions. And so for me, I'm I'm working on a book idea, which is for men raising daughters. So I'm super happy that you asked this question. Oh my God, tell me all about it. Well, the idea is like, m- men don't know the answer to that question. When I found out my wife was pregnant, first of all, it was an accident. So we weren't even trying to have a kid. Oh. I don't even know what those, <laughs> I don't know what those couples that are like having sex in, in to try to get pregnant. Yes. Like, I don't know what that's like. You I have no idea that. what that sex is like. Me either. And can I tell you, those people that are doing this, they, they feel the right to tell everybody. When couples are trying, they feel the right to tell everybody how hard they're trying. And I'm just like, I don't want to know how often you're having sex, but thanks. But yeah. Well, I just want to know what that, like what sex for the goal of that outcome is like. I think it's very like, I always because women I talk to are always very stressed about it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'd like to hear their point of view because I always think- Right? They're like trying to get pregnant. It's not happening, blah, blah. Yeah, I've never really had a conversation with a woman. I feel like men are just like- Yeah, men are probably not talking about it. They're just having the sex. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I don't think like I- this is so sexist, I guess, against men, but like, <laughs> I, I just don't think that men care as much about how good the sex is. You know, generally speaking, it'd be great to be in a relationship, a long-term relationship with someone that the sex is always great and you enjoy it like every time. But my my point of view is like, my wife and I have great sex, but I'm more happy that she's consented. <laughs> I'm like, wait, you'll, uh, you want to have sex? yes, like I'll drop everything. I don't care, you know, how it is. I try to make it good. I try to do a good job and, and you know, reinvent myself. Oh my God, I'm, I'm actually joking. If this interview, if you don't hear from me, it's because I died of joking. That is hilarious. I don't want to share too much, but I dressed up as a, a real life circus clown the other day and no she turned way. me down that time. She was like, <laughs> I'm not interested in clowns. No, so we weren't trying to have a kid. And then once she got pregnant, we were pretty excited. I mean, we're terrified. Terrified. She wasn't. I was about money. And she was just so excited because she didn't even think she could get pregnant, which explains part of how she did. She had a polycystic ovary syndrome, so it's just harder to get pregnant. And so when then we found out, we went to get the sonogram. Is that it? Yes. Yeah. And uh, we we're going to find out what we we're having. We we're that kind of couple. And I just never considered a girl. Never. My whole life. My dad had two boys. I had a brother. I was going to have a son and my life is going to be just like, I had a very good childhood and a great relationship with my dad, healthy relationship, I think. 
and still do. And I just assumed that that's what I would have. It's a stupid assumption and it's weird, but I think you just do. You, you assume your life as a parent is going to be like, maybe your life was as a child, maybe, or if you, if you want that. And that's what I wanted. I wanted that. I had a great thing. And we go to the sonogram. We find out we're having a girl. I'm devastated. What? Yeah. Wow. You were, you should have been born in Bangladesh. I mean, that's usually how men in Asia are taught to respond. Yeah. Well, there's, <laughs> there's, there's reason for that. And I'm sure that's to some extent similar as, as it is here. My reason was just like, well, I don't, I won't be as close with a girl and I don't know what to, I don't know anything about girls. I didn't have a sister and I don't, I don't know about women. I don't know how to raise a daughter. How do you raise a daughter? Would she ever like me? <laughs> and I was not going to tell my wife I was disappointed. Good. But there we were at the diner. There we were at the diner after the sonogram. And I was, I would never tell her that. But Anoche, guess what? My face did. Oh, God. <laughs> she sure cried she for like, she cried for like the maybe the first time oh, in sadness gosh. that I'd ever seen her. Maybe when she, and then um, she was so hurt by the idea that I wasn't excited about a girl. So I spent that nine months getting ready, getting amped up, deciding I was going to be the best dad for this girl that was ever existed. I read a bunch of books and it all worked. Like I highly recommend that. But I now, want to write a book that is not my advice based on, I'll have a little bit based on my experience raising daughters, but my, and I would include you in this book for sure. I was just thinking I will like totally blurb it, write the foreword. No, 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 no. I want to interview women about their relationships with their fathers. Yes. So that men reading it can say, this is my hope for my daughter and her world. And I'm going to read, you know, all these different passages. And so I would choose these women who I know, admire and respect. And then you would be free to say, listen, my relationship, like maybe a woman would say, listen, my dad wasn't even there. I don't have a dad. And as a result, this is how it turned out because I had to fend for myself or I had a great relationship with my dad. And the reason I'm a success is because he did this or he did that or he, whatever it is. So it could be bad relationship and you you still turned out in my opinion as such a powerful you know admirable human person woman or it could be bad and and this is how I overcame that and so men can understand you know the the kind of things that that work from a woman's point of view and those women would be all these you know amazing women that I know and admire from all different kinds of backgrounds and walks of life and careers and stuff but you went from being terrified of having a baby girl to being a girl dad. So what happened? Your daughter was born and you just, you had prepared, you had studied, you were determined. Well, I, I immediately entered her into the Cub Scouts and tried to make her a boy. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, the, the best way to say it is once I, I was so excited to have a girl that once when Val got pregnant again, accidentally, um, <laughs> the opposite happened. The opposite happened. I was terrified I was going to have a boy. I loved this two-year-old <laughs> so much. This little girl, I had such an amazing bond. I was doing a great job. At that point, gender is doesn't matter too much. It's used to, you know, I don't, I don't know when exactly that comes into play, but I certainly learned how to like, you know, take care of her diaper and how a vagina worked and urine <laughs> and like all that. Like I learned all the parts and I learned from... But other than that, you, there wasn't like a lot of girl stuff, I suppose. And so then I was like, when she got pregnant again, I was like, I hope we have another girl. 
And I would have been devastated if it was a boy in that case. And I would have done the same thing and I would have been happy, but we did. We had another girl. And and so, yeah, I've just, and I've just spent my life just absorbing and, and trying to be around women who I admire and just like really observe them. And then try to be the guy in my daughter's life. And, and I just want to be clear, like you're saying like a lot of nice things about me, but I let them down a lot, a lot. Like I yell at them. I yell at their mother. I lose my temper a lot. I don't come through on promises I've made to them too often. So I, I don't... You're human too. We're all... We're all human, but you, I feel like you are actively, look how conscious you are about trying to be, you know, the best. We can't always. Yeah, well, that's, the, the, the best advice I've, I've heard for parenting, this isn't genderized, but is, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry, it is. The best advice for raising like a, a daughter who's, if you want your daughter to be in a happy, healthy relationship with another person, then you need to role model that behavior for your daughter's mom or a partner. And in my case, that means I have to treat my wife with respect and I have to treat her the way I want my daughter to be treated, not being very clear. And so when I get super mad at my wife and want to yell at her and like say bad things, I can't, I can't, I mean, I do, (laughs) I have, but I'm not, it's terrible for them to see that. That's me being... Talking down, being disrespectful, condescending, reactionary, angry, uh, abusive, even. And when they see me be that, that's a bad, that's a bad, but it's hard not to because I'm mad at, I'm mad at her. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> you know, and so that, that's a constant struggle and it's a practice. And they, they know, as you said, I'm flawed. But what I do is I apologize really well. Uh, I'm very, very good at apologizing as well. And I think that's key, but also your level of awareness, um, Pete, my God, are you a prophet? Pete, the prophet. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. You, my wife should have been here. She would have been (laughs) really helpful. No, I mean, I've, I've, I I just, that is a a strength of mine to kind of constantly be trying to be aware and, and do better, but it is frustrating to not get better at the things that I'm not good at. And, and I would, you know, being reactionary and impulsive and, and get, and, and having anger issues times and uh, whether it's with my wife or my daughter. So it's, it's, it's a constant practice. And I, I think that personal growth is for me, I just look at life and say, I just want to keep getting better at life. And by the time I die, hopefully I'm, you know, I've, I've worked on a lot of those things. And now I know a little bit about carpentry. So I'm getting better at a lot of different things. Uh, <laughs> okay. A little bit, like a tiny bit. You are so hilarious. Oh my God. This interview could go on forever. And you've been so generous. I will talk to you forever. I don't have anything for another seven hours. I, but I have one last question. Sure. Um, we should have a show together. I'm so excited about this. Is Mindful masculinity is really um, amazing. Anytime. Right, let's do the pilot right after this. Sure. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, so my last question to you is you are almost kind of like a Renaissance man, but what inspires <laughs> you? You know, what motivates you? Why do you do uh, the work that you do? Justice. Justice for all or justice for you? For me. <laughs> it's about making money and ha- and having stuff <laughs> and status. Subscribers, what, what? No, I mean, listen. My show is called Stand Up with Pete Dominic. It's always been a stupid brand because I'm a stand-up comedian, and it's very confusing. But the, my brand has always been to fight bullies. I was the smallest kid in school, and I got bullied because of that. My brother was like 
quote, weird alternative, he got the shit kicked out of him. He was older than me. And I hated what happened to him and I hated what was happening to me. And so when someone bullied me for being small, as long as I can remember, I destroyed them verbally. I I never fought anybody over something like that because I I was small. I wasn't going to win. But I would make sure they knew that whatever comment or insult they made about my size would be met with a comment that would hurt them or make fun of them or warn them not to do it. It would never be like a physical warning. I'll kick your ass. mother. I would make fun of them. Oh, I'm tiny. Your head doesn't fit your body. Look at you. Have you ever looked in the mirror? Your head is way too big for your body. And it would hurt this kid so badly that he wasn't going to come for me again. And so I'm not necessarily proud of, of hurting another person, but it was a survival skill that I, that I acquired that I've now used in my career to go after other bullies. So, you know, any kind of marginalization or injustice is something that I'm attracted to trying to learn more about and trying to fight. And so now I just, you know, have people on who are doing that actual work and I, and I help, you know, learn about their work and, 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 and get involved with it and, and support it. And so justice and, and fighting bullies and standing up to injustice of all kinds, which I think is super easy for me at least to recognize. I could see it pretty easily. And I love that. It, it's never going to end. I don't think that that we're going to have justice for all. I think it's silly, but we can make things better for people. I've seen it happen in so many different ways. Two steps forward, one step back. So it definitely gets me out of bed every every day and has for 15 years. Stand-up comedy wasn't like enough. It what didn't inspire me enough. And after 9-11 and after, I mean, there's a, a whole bunch of things that happened that, that inspired me to do this type of work, but I just kind of got woken up. I also had a lot of experiences in college with specifically with black men, like just relationships. And I grew up in an all white like town and, and, and like, I, I really got radicalized on like issues of race in a way that was really wonderful in college. <laughs> and then I moved to New York and I, it was, it was gay people and Jewish people and, you know, I don't, you name it, Haitian people or, you know, disabled folks or whatever, whatever it is. So I like, I'm I'm attracted to different people from different walks of life and trying to understand what they're dealing with and being, you know, a white guy in America uh, who has certainly suffered in all kinds of ways. Like I said, just being small. Like I, it's not like white people don't suffer. That's the thing that I want to like yell at white people. We're not, we're not, I'm not, I'm not dismissing your pain. I'm not dismissing your poverty. Being white, it doesn't mean life is great. You have all kinds of horror, horror in your life, abuse. I mean, every white person has all kinds of struggles. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying with all my anxieties, depressions and concerns and insecurities and struggles, I still don't have any looking at me when I walk into a store. Yeah. (laughs) Like I still have every opportunity just because I'm in this this, suit, this beautiful, like, you know, it's not only me, for me, as you know, uh, it's not only being white and straight, it's being like gorgeous. That's not... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like the symmetry in my face, the low body fat, like my tan skin, like that's, I recognize that. <laughs> Pete, you're going to bring out my ugly, real donkey laugh as my best friends call it. <laughs> I want, I'm here for, that's what I'm here for. Let's go. My, God. my green eyes, my green eyes, my perfectly bald skull. I mean, come on. There's nobody, there's nobody nearly as handsome. Listen, I know my privilege. <laughs> 
This has been one of the best interviews. I am so excited for my listeners to hear this, but also so grateful to you for your time and your being so generous with your time. You and I wasted a lot of time walking past each other at MSNBC and not being friends. We must have seriously. I did walk past you or we were on, I think, right after each other, after up with David Gura on yeah, MSNBC. Yeah, yeah. It was always this kind of thing where, where I felt like there was this kind of like, Wink and a nod, like, hey, I've seen you, you've seen me. I'll go do your thing. I like you. But it was like we never talked. And then we kind of said we should talk. And then we finally started talking. And I was like, oh my gosh, we we should have been talking for a long time, but I don't live in the past. Let's Yes. And I'm so glad we're talking now because now I want us to start working together. This is so awesome. I my head is like spinning with a whole bunch of ideas I have. But thank you so much, P. We're gonna clean up this interview and it will be up in a week or so. You what whittle it down to four minutes? <laughs> no, I think I'm gonna keep the whole thing. I love talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to having you back on my show whenever possible. And I'll, you you just tell me where to be and I'll be there and work with you, whatever. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I will talk to you soon. I'm all pumped up, Pete. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. As a feminist, one of the biggest stereotypes I've had to deal with is that feminists hate all men. It used to drive me nuts. I get so much joy when I think of how much progress we have made on that once all too common misconception. We've also come a long way when it comes to calling out harmful gender stereotypes. It makes me think about how just like feminism can be good for men, women also benefit from mindful masculinity. If you enjoyed this episode of Spilling Chai, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, and until next time, let's keep spilling the chai.